This is a production of the Z Talk Radio Network. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of Z Talk Radio, its affiliates, or sponsors. Wow. It's dark. Well, let's have some light on the subject. Put on your critical thinking caps and please refrain from hugging. It's time for Dimland Radio with your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Hello and welcome to Dimland Radio here on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Remember, I'm not really a doctor. I just play doctor online. Uh, I did not do a show last week. I know this is becoming a bit uh, frequent, <laughs> my not doing a show. I'm feeling like uh, Johnny Carson, except I don't have guest hosts. Uh, you have to be a certain age to understand what that means. You see, you see, kids, uh, back in the day, there was this old guy who uh, had a talk show on uh, that would be considered late night, you know, after 10.30 in the, at night. He would come on, and uh, he got to a point, he, he was on the air for a long time, and he got to a point where uh, he might do, I think, two shows a week. And then, you know, one show would be a repeat, and, and the other shows would be, you know, hosted by guest hosts. And, and, and it's just, uh, he got to do that, see. And I, I don't have guest hosts, and so when I need a week off, I... I, I it's just I don't do a show. So I I, I was uh, of good intentions to you know put old shows that aren't in the uh, the, uh, the uh, Apple Podcast feed, which I've which I've realized I should start calling it Apple Podcast because they they don't refer to it as iTunes. <laughs> you know, as far as when it comes to podcasts, you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, and that's uh, I, I just realized that within the last couple weeks that huh uh you know i should be saying that anyway so i had with good intentions had just had wanted to to put in bonus episodes on any of those weeks where i couldn't do a show but it's kind of there's a little bit of production involved in putting a bonus show together and get it in the feed so you know i i'll try uh, but i'll also try to not have uh, to take off as much time as I've been doing, you know, there's, there's been reasons. And this latest one, I don't want to get too far into detail, but it has to do, do with my mother. Um, she's okay. Uh, she's, 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 she had some, she had some issues with sleeping, which was causing some anxiety problems, and it just, it just began to snowball. Uh, and she's, there was some time that she spent in the hospital, uh, not only to figure out uh, if there was a physical cause going on, uh, but to check and see what kind of medications were being used and, and how they were interacting, and maybe that had something to do with it. So she's worked with her, her you know, she was in the hospital just for observation to check on some stuff. Um, she, she came home, uh, and she has seen her regular doctor who she likes a lot 
and that regular doctor has helped her in the past with uh, medication stuff and so they're looking at it again and just trying to work their way through it and so mom's better you know she had a rough week and that leading up to what have been would have been the you know last week's show uh, the week following was a bit better um, so we're just hoping you know hoping things are working out so by the time I would have, would have done a show last week, I was just wiped. <laughs> it's just my brain was wiped because it was a. You know, I had to make a couple of trips to help with things. I'm, uh, I'm the I'm the uh, the offspring that lives the closest to the parents, so I'm the first call for help. It's just how it goes, and that's that's part of the bargain. If you live this close to your parents and your parents are elderly. You're gonna you're gonna be the one that gets the call. Uh, not that there's much I can do sometimes. Uh, at times there's, you know, it's just otherwise just get over there and help the one that's not having a problem. Uh, you know, deal with nine one. You know, emergency with nine one one and and that kind of thing. And if that if that happens, so okay, let's. I hope she's getting back to more normal. And uh, anyway, so I, that's that's why there was no show last week, and I don't want to get too much into details. Okay. But speaking of my parents, and this is sort of a cute story about my dad, but it's also an example, I think, of how you know how we perceive the world uh, as influenced by you know the context of our of our knowledge and our experience, you know how we perceive things, and. And and it can be inf in, that perception can be influenced by um, what is happening in your life at the moment, <laughs> something that's on your mind, and some other thing comes in. It's the the influence of that previous thing. Does that make any sense? Well, okay. Here's the here's here's the story. Uh, my dad noticed that um, a couple of the windows on their house, uh, the framing. Of the windows on the outside needed some attention and he has he still has the skills maybe not as much of the stamina uh, and strength but he still has tools and knows what to do and he, and he was able to make these repairs and uh, but he also noticed that the kitchen window has a screen uh, window of course uh, that that's exposed to the elements the screen is and it's it's a nylon screen and it get it gets hit with hail and we had a hailstorm a couple few weeks ago, poked some holes in it and it's just getting tattered because it get, it gets weathered because it gets a lot of exposure to weather from that face of the wall I guess is, you know, of the house that 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 part of it and he's thinking well you know I got to put a new get a new screen for the window now I don't know much. <laughs> But I know that uh, there are hardware stores where you can bring a screen in. It's, it's like you know, screen window in to have the people at the hardware store replace the screen for you. You know, they'll take out the old one. There's a little, like a, so it's like a little bead of rubber that's like a tube or something that gets placed into a, a little uh, a little divot that runs along a little gutter that runs around uh, the the space, and you you know to put it in place. And they get they have the tools and the, they can tighten it up real nice the screen and make it real nice. 
And my dad does have know-how and stuff like that, but I'm not sure if he has the exact tool for it. We might. You know, Amy and I, we might have it because her dad had all kinds of tools that I end up getting. And, I mean, you know, it's possible. I think it's I have this nugget of a memory that's rolling around in my head that says that I asked her, what is this tool? I don't remember where we saw it or where, where it's kept or anything. And I seem to recall she said, well, you use that when you're putting in screens on screen windows. You use that to get the little fastener tube thing in place. I think that I have that, but I don't know. Memory's not videotape, and I can't bring it fully to the fore, so it could be a false memory. I don't know. Anyway, so, well, Dad's got this on his mind. He's got to get this, this screen taken care of. So I told him, I said, well, you know, you could go to, maybe Home Depot would do it. You could contact them. Maybe they'd do it. Uh, there are these other hardware stores around, the more mom-and-pop-ish uh, hardware stores. Uh, maybe... Maybe one of them could take could do it, and he said, "Yeah, I'll have to look into it. I'll have to check that out. I'll have to see what see what I can find out." I mean, I could do it myself, I think, but you know, yeah, I should check it out. But then he said something. He said, "You know that Batteries Plus store out by the by the mall out there?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, I I know about it." He said, well, I saw on the sign, they have a sign out front that says, um, they, they, you know, if, if your screen's broke, they can fix it. I said, batteries plus? And he says, yeah, it says if your screen screen's broken, we can fix it. And I said, I, really? And, and, and the batteries plus store, it does have that sign out. It says, screen broken, we fix it. It's not the best grammar. It should be, we can fix it, but, you know, only so much space, and maybe they didn't have enough letters. But, uh, you know, so it's true. It's out there. And I said, but, but it's, I said, but Dad, batteries plus? They fix window screens? I mean, it's a store where you buy batteries and light bulbs, and they do some services. There's some services they provide. And that's when it clicked into place in my brain. <laughs> I said, Dad... Uh, I think they mean when they're talking about if your screen's broken that they fix, it's the screen that's on your cell phone or on your iPad uh, or, um, you know, tablet, you know, computer tablet kind of thing. It's a computer thing. It's not, it's not window screens. He says, oh, oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing my dad taking the screen off of his, you know, the, you know the, that part of the window apart, and he takes the takes it out the frame with the old screen in there, and he brings it out to Batteries Plus and walks in, and some kid behind the counter, <laughs> this old dude walks up and says, "Yeah, I see you guys. Uh, the screen's busted here. Can you think you can fix this for me?" <laughs> but that shows you. His perception, his his understanding of that sign, was influenced by the context of his experience uh, and, and of his knowledge, because he doesn't know anything about screens. I, th I think he, I think he has a flip phone as far as his cell phone, which really he rarely even uses. Sometimes they, I think he forgets he even has it. And they don't have a computer. They did for a little bit, and they were connected to the internet for a little bit. But mom was like, "I don't know. I I don't do anything with it. It doesn't seem like it's important. Why do we have the internet? I don't know what to do with it. It's like I don't know. It just doesn't. I I'm not using it. Why?" <laughs>
But mom, there's porn. Well, I, I don't want to watch porn. Well, maybe dad does. I don't know. I didn't say that to my parents. <clears throat> so, um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I found that rather, uh, uh, cute, uh, but luckily, luckily, I headed him off at the pass and kept him from heading out to the uh, batteries plus to get his window screen fixed. <clears throat> okay, I know that the shows I've been doing lately have been heavily uh, tainted, if that's the right way, tinted uh, with the uh, with the COVID. This pandemic that's been going around, and and with a little dash of our president, uh, and I know that that it gets a little hard to listen to sometimes. It's just I know, I know, but it's just I, it's the stuff I talk about, and and so I I I was thinking about this over the the couple of weeks before, um, you know, when I didn't do a show last week and I didn't want to hear. Let's let's come up with something that's gonna be you know a little light you know nothing you know, let's let's not hammer people anymore now it is going to be self-indulgent <laughs> i'll tell you that much uh because um i'm going to talk about comic books here and it's and some of the stuff i've I'm, I'm sure i've talked about before but i'm going to connect a bunch of things hopefully and 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 bring it into um maybe even into a little bit of a lesson that i need to learn myself about critical thinking I don't know. Let's see if I can do it. Uh, it worked in rehearsal, but let's see if let's see if I can do it. Um, I should. I, I I know I've told you guys this before. I started collecting comic books, and actually, I, I more categorize it as uh, 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 buying comic books in the early 1970s. And it was yes, technically yes, I was collecting them. I was keeping them. I didn't just read them and throw them away or recycle. Of course, we weren't recycling back then. Uh, well, maybe a little. Um, I, you know, I, w I would keep the comic books, but I was not in the collector mindset, where you know, treat the comic books really well, keep them in good condition, do you know, don't, don't screw these things up because they could be valuable. Didn't even think of that. It wasn't. We weren't even thinking of that kind of thing, which is kind of a good thing. Uh, in the baseball documentary that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Ken Burns made. In the original one that he made, there was a there's a, a baseball pitcher named uh, uh, Will Lee. Is that his name? No. Anyway, there's this. He's kind of a hippie commie pitcher who I think pitched for the Boston Red Sox. I think, and he was talking about how kids today, and this would be in the '90s, are more are so they understand the collecting thing at a much earlier age than I did when I was at that earlier age. Uh, they, that they, they, what's your baseball card worth? And he says, oh, it's a plug nickel. And he says, it's not worth anything. You just put it in your bike wheels and just make noise. It's not worth anything. Just stop being concerned about what things are worth. You know, that sort of you know, hippie crap. So, <laughs> anti-capitalist, commie! Urgh! Hi, oh, commies. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, I was a typical kid back in the early 70s where I wasn't thinking that this is going to be worth something. It just was, I like comic books. I, I would buy the book. I thought, that's got a cool cover. I like that. And my older brother would buy comic books, and he would buy a cool one. And I'd want to have, you know, I, I thought, that's cool. And I knew he wouldn't let me 
you know, have it. He might let me look at it, but it wasn't going to be something that I'd have access to. So I might buy the same comic book he bought, just so I'd have my copy of it. Uh, so it, it, and it, and I would be a little abusive to him. I'd draw on him. I'd cut pictures out of him. There was it just was not, you know, wasn't very, wasn't very forward thinking about how to treat my comic books. Uh, until, well, see, we moved into this neighborhood, uh, well, that I live in now. Uh, my parents, we moved into the house that my parents are still living in, in 1973. My parents brought the kids along, of course. And, uh, and I learned of a, of, a, of a store not all that far away that uh, sold comic books. Uh, found out about it by a kid in the neighborhood who was the son of uh, a married couple that were friends with my parents. And they lived in the area that we moved into. And his, his name was Roland. And he was a year or two older than me, I think. And he took to he he took to calling me, you know, or or you know, just uh, singing when I came around. Jimamaya was a bullfrog, which is you know, he's his take on the uh, Three Dog Night song, Joy to the World. You know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, kind of. so he'd sing that to me because it, you know, I don't know, he thought it was funny, and and the song was new at the time. <laughs> That's how old. I am. <clears throat> anyway, he uh, showed uh, showed me that there's a there's a store down the way that sells comic books, and I let the siblings know about that. They didn't believe me at first, but then I showed them. Look, it's here. And there's the comic books. Roland showed me this, and so that's where we get our comic books. And my sister wasn't all that interested, but uh, my older brother, my younger brother, they were. And it was back in the days when, if you were a kid, and you're looking through the comic books, and the manager of the store would walk by and say, all right, it's not a library. Either buy it or put it away. <laughs> so, okay. And so we, I'd start buying, and you know, I liked the cover, I'd buy it. But when I got to school that year, third grade, met my friend Todd, who was a, uh, my best friend in, in grade school. And he was into comic books. And the two of us, we created our own comic books together. And uh, and I'd go over to his house, and, and we'd go through his comic books. And he kept his comic books in good shape. And he would buy, you know, month after month, he'd buy, uh, you know, titles. And he'd follow along with them. And he would he taught me that, you know, there's a story that runs through these. And it's not just like a two-part, two-comic book stories or three comic books, you know, that would cover one story it you might have a little element of a story told in this one issue here and you know six months later or ten months later they they start to pick up that storyline they might have another little blip of it in between just a little something a little hint of something coming and then they get to that story and they'd say and they'd remind you oh remember when that when we when we did this thing in the comic book back there and they put a little asterisk in there with the number of the comic book so you could go oh yeah so he told me this hey yeah they, they, they run they're really cool it took uh, it took some time for his influence to get me to start seriously collecting so, and that was in about 1977 and I started buying the Avengers and the Uncanny X-Men those were the two titles I started buying and I started taking care of my comic books. But I've gotten to my first break, so I'm going to uh, throw it to the break and uh, remind you that you are listening to Dimland Radio on the Z-Talk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. Uh, more comic book talk coming up. I'm going to do some little history stuff and try to connect it to this thing, a thing. Just, just see if I can do it. And, ugh, gosh, I hope I can. Uh, you're listening to Dimland Radio on the Z-Talk Radio Network. I'm your host, Jim Dr. Dimfit Simmons. I'll return after this break.
Dimland Radio on Ztalk Radio Network. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you think Bigfoot is real? Do you suspect that your neighbor is really Val Tor, leader of the lizard people of Bendar 3? Well, Dr. Dim doesn't, and he'll tell you why when you tune in to Dimland Radio Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern on Ztalk Radio Network. It's an hour of science promotion, pop culture rants, personal observation, and of course, skepticism. Join Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern, for Dimland Radio on Z-Talk Radio Network. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio, the number one choice for music, sports, news, and talk radio. So keep that dial locked to ztalkradio.com. Welcome back to Dimland Radio here on the Ztalk Radio Network at uh, ztalkradio.com. I'm your host Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, talking about comic books. Okay, so that that's the that's the early story of me getting into comic books. In 1977 or so, I started really collecting them seriously, and I started to learn about comic books. I started to read about the histories of comic books, and started to see stories about and and, and interview stuff, and, and even way up into later life, paying attention to. Uh, the history of comic books. Now, I was a Marvel Comics kid. There's DC Comics, and there were other comic book companies, but the real two companies back at the time, the, the two biggest, was DC Comics, they were the oldest, and Marvel Comics. So in 1938, uh, just, just actually, I'm not sure exactly when the first uh, quote-unquote comic book started coming out. I think it was 38, 37, 38, something like that. Uh, and what they were at the very beginning... They were just um, reprinting of comic strips that would show up in the newspapers, collected into uh, you know these uh, these magazine publishers, the, the pulp magazines from back in those days. They thought, well, if we we could take these comic strips from from the newspapers and publish them all into a collection, into a comic book. That's why it's called a comic book because they were comic strips put into comic books, and eventually um, they thought, hey. You know, we could take this new format that we've created and not just pull stuff from newspapers. Let's let's make our own comic books. Let's 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 create stories. Let's start doing this. And and artists and writers started to work on them. And it was not thought of as the highest end of literature, but they were creating this new art form, uh, and that was really cool. And there's these two young fellows. I hope I get their names right. Uh, uh, Joe Schuster 
and Jerry Siegel. They created Superman. They were a couple of kids. They had this idea for Superman. Was, uh, I believe he's the first superhero character in comic books. I, I, I'm pretty sure he is. And it was 1938 that National Comics, which later became DC Comics, published Action Comics number one. It was a huge sensation. It wasn't all Superman, but it just, you know, the, one of the, the main story in there was Superman, the cover story, and I think there were other stories within it. Comic books had a lot more pages back in the day. And all for a dime. And anyway, so it became a sensation. So other comic book companies started to create uh, superheroes. And, you know, uh, National went on to create uh, Batman uh, and, and, and Wonder Woman and The Flash and Aquaman and, you know, Robin and all those you know, superhero characters. And this other company called Timely Comics or Timely Publications or Timely Comics, um, uh, they they too created some superheroes. Uh, first among them were uh, this character called the Human Torch, and then there was Prince Namor, the Submariner, and then Captain America. Now I want to talk a bit about Captain America's origin. Now I think I, I was just doing a little quick research here, and I, you know I did a blog about this a bit ago, uh, and I might have the dates wrong. I'm about to go back in the blog and, and correct it, but. Um, <clears throat> This was in the early days of comic books. Um, it, I guess you know the first issue of well, um, let's let's back up. Uh, it was Timely Comics. There were these two artists, uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. They were working, you know, drawing comics. I think uh, Simon was doing some writing of them, and they came up with this character, and he was going to be America's super soldier, and he, um, yeah. It, 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 you know, well, it was Captain America. Might as well just say it. It was Captain America. And I wrote about it as a great cover because it's it, the cover itself is of note, historical note, because the book, uh, I guess, hit the newsstands in 1941, in March 1941, but I thought it was December 1940. I will look more deeply into it. But it was it came out at a time when the United States was still neutral when it came to that war over there in Europe, the Second World War, which is going on again. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, our president at the time, was saying, you know, we may not be neutral in our hearts, but we're going to be neutral when it comes to how, you know, in our actions. However, he, they came up with this, or he came up with uh, this thing called Lend-Lease, which was a way for the United States to send the, the, the things that, uh, uh, that England needed to stand up against uh, Germany and Italy, because they were pretty much the only country fighting them in that war. France had fallen. Uh, Russia hadn't been brought into the war yet. Uh, you know, pretty much all the rest of Europe. Spain remained neutral, I believe, through the whole thing. And um, so, you know, it's just, there was England kind of dealing with it. And, and so Lend-Lease made it possible to send them you know, weapons and munitions and ships and airplanes and food and clothing and all this kind of stuff. There were, you know, the sentiment in the United States, I don't know if it's the majority sentiment, but it was very strong, was we don't want to get involved in another war over there. And uh, FDR knew that, so maybe he realized eventually we're going to get in there and I have to ease the country into it. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to talk conspiracy theory here. But uh, this Lend-Lease was something that 
that that that that Congress passed, even though there were some in Congress that thought that it gave the president too much power. But it was something that happened. Now, this comic book comes out at a point where the United States was officially neutral, and Lend-Lease was just beginning. Uh, and so, and this was bef if. If my number was right, that it was December 1940. This was a year before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. If the number I'm finding on the internet's now, and again, I'm going to have to look into this to make sure I get it right, and it was March 1941, it, it wasn't, you know, it was a little closer to Pearl Harbor, and yet, still, the sentiment, a strong sentiment in the country was we didn't want to get involved. And here's this little comic book company that decides to create... America's super soldier. And what did they do with that cover? The first the, the, the first cover of Captain America comics shows Captain America punching Hitler right in the face. And that's a pretty ballsy move it, to do that because, the, like I said, there's a strong sentiment of getting involved and the official position was that we were still neutral and yet this comic book company creates Captain America... Uh, as a uh, and has him punching Hitler on the cover. And there were some Americans that supported Hitler back in those days. We called them Nazis. And uh, anyway, so um, and they, there was death threats and all kinds of stuff with the uh, to the to the to the publisher and the and the artists and they had to have police protection for a little bit. So part of the reason I think you know, well that's from what I've read that maybe that this the you know they the comic book industry was um, quite a few of the people that worked for it that produced the comic books and all that they happened to be Jewish just just something that at least at timely and then their sensitivity toward the Nazis and Hitler and all that might have been just a little more heightened than other Americans so but that that was a pretty ballsy move to do that uh, well, okay, so superhero comic books do well through the war, but as the war ended, superheroes kind of, meh, they went out of favor. So comic books became, uh, you know, westerns and war comics and romance comics, or as we boys called it back in the day, girls comics. Terrible boys. Uh, it, that's, you know, superheroes just weren't, kind of went out of fashion. DC sort of was able to keep it going a little bit, but then they started to revive the superhero thing in the mid-50s. Also in the mid-50s was a problem with comic books. They were melting the minds of our kids, turning our children into delinquents. Uh, there was a psychiatrist named uh, Frederick Wortham who wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. And it was in there that he talked about how comic books uh, were, you know, the violent images in comic books. And there were some. There was a company called EC Comics, which was run by William Gaines, that had some pretty um, sophisticated stuff. Some, you know, it's written for an older audience, really, not just not not for the younger kids, older kids, and maybe up even into the young adult kind of to trying to write that. There was a story that they did. And I, I, I didn't have a chance to look for it um, to find out what year it came out, but it was very early on. I don't even think that uh, we may not have even, the United States may not have even sent anybody out into space, but there's a story that follows an astronaut as he's exploring some new planet or something, and you, we just see him in his astronaut outfit. We don't get to see his face until the last panel when he takes the helmet off, and he's a black man. He's an African-American. 
and that is that was gutsy in in whatever year that was <laughs> and that raised some eyebrows but there was also a lot of violent imagery uh there was some fairly sophisticated war stories with uh, some you know some again the violence of war and all that kind of stuff so the there was a congressional uh, or a senate he subcommittee hearing about comic books uh, uh, senator estes kefauver led the way to comic books have got to be you know brought in line you're you're warping our children so what ended up happening was the industry came up what was called the Comics Code Authority, which was a body that they put together that would review comic books before they were published to give it the stamp of approval. And, you know, so, that, so that would make the Senate happy. And there were certain rules and, and certain uh, things that they couldn't show or say, or there was certain you know, rules that they had to, the comic book companies had to abide by if they wanted to get the seal. And, uh, uh, well, that upset William Gaines. Yeah, so he, he shuttered his uh, comic book company, essentially. He took one comic book from the line of comic books that he was doing, and he, and he converted it into a magazine, because magazines were not subject to the Comics Code Authority. That magazine was a little thing called MAD, Mad Magazine. That's it. So, so this just kind of birthed that. It may have ended EC Comics, but it, it gave us Mad Magazine. Um, okay. So, along the line, this in 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 nineteen what was it nineteen thirty nine I think it was a little a young fellow named Stan Lee started working for Timely. He started off as like a gopher. He would erase pencil lines off the inked pages for the comic books and he would do stuff like that and he worked his way into writing and he would do the the little two or three page stories not the main stories um, he did serve in the army uh, uh, during World War two he was uh, he was in the signal corps and then he would do some you know he would uh, he moved on to writing for training films and publications and stuff for in the war uh, and I think he also was continuing to work for Timely, writing stories for Timely, uh, and while he was doing that, um, as so when he gets out of the war, he goes back to work for Timely. He's writing more and more, and he starts writing the big stories, and that's when this this the superhero thing waned, and the whole comics code stuff happens, and and this kind of stuff is taking place, and Stanley starts to get a little tired and disillusioned with comic books he doesn't you know he wanted to be you know a, a great writer i wanted to be the i wanted to write the great american novel i wanted to do that but i you know comic books you know so he was a little embarrassed about doing comic books and he was getting a little tired with the stuff that he was was doing and this is where the story gets a little bit um uh, muddled because memory is a little different and Stan would tell the story a certain way that didn't necessarily reflect what actually happened uh, as far as I know. Uh, the story he would tell would be that uh, he was thinking he was going to quit comic books. It's getting close to 1960 or it's 1960 or so. He's going to quit comic books. Uh, he was reluctant to do so because he had a wife and daughter to take care of but 
And his wife told him, well, you know, why don't you just write a story you want to write? Write something you want to write, and if they don't like it and they fire you, well, you're, you're going to quit anyway. What do you got to lose? So I created the Fantastic Four. Well, with a little help from Jack Kirby. Well, actually, it was a lot of help from Jack Kirby. And it didn't exactly go that way. What I learned is that the publisher of uh, what was now called Atlas Comics, soon to become Marvel Comics, the publisher of Atlas Comics was, I think, playing golf with the publisher of DC Comics. And that the, the DC guy, uh, Julius Schwartz, I believe his name was, he was bragging about this new title he put out in 1960 called uh, Justice League of America. And that was a superhero supergroup. Yeah, it's Superman and Wonder Woman, Batman and Robin, Aquaman, The Flash, Green Lantern. It had all these characters in it. And it was doing really well. And that inspired Martin Goodman, the publisher of Atlas Comics, soon to become Marvel Comics. He went back and he got Stanley and Jack Kirby. He says, Come here, boys. Uh, he probably showed him a pic, uh, issue of uh, Justice League of America and says, I want you guys to give me a superhero group. Let's go. And the two of them, Lee and Kirby, created the Fantastic Four, uh, which was you know, published in 1961, and it changed comic books forever. Now, here's where the story of he was going to quit, he, he didn't like how he was, you know, the kind of stories he was writing, and his wife told him, well, write this kind of story you want to write. Now, here's where I think this connects in, and that is he decided to write a superhero comic book the way he wanted to write it. And that was to kind of place it in the real world. And they, uh, kind of, uh, because it took place in New York City. There wasn't, it wasn't Gotham City or Metropolis. It was New York City. It, there were real cities in these comic books. And, uh, and he, the, the, the major thing he did, and I don't think Kirby had anything to do with this. His idea was comic book superheroes ought to be identifiable. You know, the reader should be able to see themselves within these superheroes. And 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 so he he wrote these these characters as as human beings. These were people that had problems that they had to deal with other than whatever supervillain was showing up that month. You know, Peter Parker had his homework to worry about, and his, his his Aunt May, he had to worry about her. And then and and the Fantastic Four were kind of like a family, and they would have their squabbles with each other. They'd have their difficulties that families would have. It, this, the, there were these there were things that people that the readers could relate to, and he and he lifted the 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 level of writing away from little kids or younger kids to older kids and upper teens and maybe even the, the, into their twenties. Yeah, when you read those early comic books, they do seem kind of silly and yeah. But from what there it used to be, and compared to DC comics, they were yeah. Come on, this was Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, this is. I mean, this. I mean, it was really. It was revelatory. It was just. This was cool, and that's why. When I was a kid, I just related to Marvel so much better than I related to DC. It just didn't didn't sing for me. Oh my goodness, I've come to my next break. Whew, I don't know. I had other stuff planned for this, but I'll just keep following. Just follow along with me. Let's see. Let's see where I get to. You're listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Doof, Dim Fitzsimmons. I shall return after this break.
और बी हूं He's endlessly pushing the rock of reason up the hill of paranormal. It's Dr. Dim and you're listening to Dimland Radio on Z-Talk Radio Network. Reasonable is the interview show from the Merseyside Skeptic Society, where each month I speak to someone about their fringe beliefs. Over the years, I've spoken to psychics, UFO believers, moon landing deniers, flat earthers, hollow earthers, and all manner of unusual conspiracy theorists. But I've also talked to AIDS denialists, white supremacists, gay conversion therapists. I even interviewed Jim Humble, the inventor of Miracle Mineral Supplement, a form of industrial bleach that he and his followers used to treat cancer and HIV. This isn't a debate show, and my aim isn't to win an argument. But when we listen to how people promote and justify the ideas that we disagree with, even the dangerous ones, I think we become much more effective at countering those ideas. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, look for Be Reasonable on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else the podcasts live. But we give those other guys the finger. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio Network. Hello and welcome back. Dimland Radio here on the Z-Talk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dim for Simmons. I'm talking about comic books, a little history about things, and I'm trying to get us to the moment where I will connect this to something that hopefully helps us with our critical thinking. <clears throat> we'll see. Um, so, uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby, uh, they have huge success with the Fantastic Four, which leads to the creation of all kinds of other characters. Uh, there's the you know the Hulk, and Iron Man comes along, and of course the signature character of uh, Marvel Comics, Spider-Man. Uh, you get Daredevil, you get Doctor Strange, you get the Thor, uh, Thor, just Thor, and they get their own. And there's another superhero supergroup comes about. That's the Avengers, which is one of my favorite titles or my favorite comic book title from when I was a kid. And so it's just, it grows, and it expands, and it goes crazy. Oh, gee whiz. Hang on a second. got to let the cat out on the porch. Do you want to go on the porch, cat? There you go. Okay. So, <clears throat> there's, you know, and then the rest is history. <laughs> you know, the, the I was a Marvel kid. I enjoyed it. I buy Marvel comics. Although I did discover, you know, DC wasn't quite as stodgy and silly as I thought it was. At least it it was in a transition period when I was a kid. It was starting to get a little more serious about uh, their stories, and, and um, they were trying to, you know, trying to match what Marvel was doing. <laughs> so, um, 
and so I just uh, I I often say this. I'm a Marvel kid, but my favorite comic book character is Batman, which is a DC character. I'm not even I'm not I'm not even sure what my favorite Marvel character is. You know, I, I, the favorite group is uh, the Avengers with the X Men, you know, close behind. But it's just yeah, it's hard. It's it's, it's hard. Anyway. So on YouTube, there is a there is a, a channel called Biographics, and what they do is they produce these well done, well produced, uh, uh, fifteen minute, twenty minutes, thirty minute pieces uh, that are biographies of you know, famous people throughout world history, from entertainment, from politics, literature. Uh, just whatever you know, they've, they've got one about Hitler, of course, and they got you know, there's 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 one about Rasputin, there's and and there's one about Stan Lee. Now I was just telling you of uh, some stuff about Stan Lee, stuff I know, stuff I've read, stuff I've learned over the years, uh, collecting comic books and reading interviews and reading biographies and seeing other things, and I watched this video biography about Stan Lee and there was some things that they uh, said in there uh, it's hosted by a fellow named Simon Whistler who's a British fellow um, nice looking guy young uh, good voice I mean it's got a British accent it's good but uh, you know he has a uh, just it's nicely presented and there's production to it there's people that write it there's uh, you know there's an editor they put in graphics they have a little bit of music that they use you know you know music drops that they put in there it's great you know it's really well done except I watched the Stan Lee one they they did mention in there that Stan Lee was uh, he was the first uh, uh, Comic book publisher to uh, make certain. I uh, was, was he. I was the editor at the time or something when he first started doing. When Marvel Comics started coming out, uh, he made sure that the the names of the uh, the people involved in the production of that comic book appeared on the first page. You know, a little box saying, "Brought to you by," you know, written by Stan Lee and drawn by. Uh, um, pencils by uh, Jack Kirby and inks by Joe Sinnott and uh, letters by Artie Simic. They wouldn't put the color artist in there too much uh, at first, but then eventually they started to make sure that that person got credited too. And they were the, and Marvel was the first to do that, and that's true. It was up to Stan Lee, and I think part of the reason why it was done so that Stan Lee's name. <laughs> would appear in every comic book because well he was writing so many of the books at the at, at the beginning uh anyway and so that was true and they said that uh he would call the uh the the staff the creative staff at marvel comics they called the bullpen you know, the artists and inkers and writers they were the bullpen and uh and that was true uh but then Simon mentions the uh, Mary Marvel Marching Society, and he says it was uh, it was what Stan Lee called the creative staff at uh, and the people that worked at Marvel Comics. And I said, no, that's the bullpen. <laughs> you know, they said both. And I, said, and I went, no, 
The Mary Marvel Marching Society, or MMMS, was the official Marvel fan club. If you were a member, you, you could send in for a membership of that organization, and you get newsletters, and you get little prizes or something. I said, that's 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 not right. So I continue to watch, and they talked about uh, the Comics Code Authority. They talked about how you know in the fifties, mid fifties, uh, comic books came under the scrutiny of uh, of uh, the of Congress. And, and and was being blamed for juvenile delinquency. So they don't, it's, it's an indication. They don't directly say it, but they say, they talk about the Senate investigating comic books, and they set up the Comics Code Authority. And I thought, well, who's they? Because it sounds like people are going to come away from this video thinking that the Senate, that uh, you know, they, they created, the Comics Code Authority, but no, it was an industry. It was the industry itself created it. So I was like, it, that doesn't, that's not quite right. <laughs> and then he talked about the Fantastic Four, which came out. And he said uh, that the, the Fantastic Four was published in November 1961 uh, without the approval of the Comics Code Authority. And I went. I said, "What? No, <laughs> no. You you can you can look up the cover of Avenge, uh, Fantastic Four number one, and right up there in the upper right hand corner is the stamp that they created, the little seal stamp kind of thing that says Comics Code Authority. It's got an AC stylized AC in there. And you, I, I looked through the first twelve issues, <laughs> you know, each the first twelve months of of the Fantastic Four, and each one is approved by the Comics Code Authority. I thought, okay, you got that one wrong. And, and, and they, they had other things. Um, uh, they talked about how Stan Lee, uh, you know, it came to put uh, uh, cartoons on, on, of uh, Marvel Comics on television. And they talked about Spider-Man. And the, the producers of the cartoon wouldn't listen to Stan Lee. They wouldn't take his advice on what to do on, on airing these, you know, uh, on creating the Spider-Man animated series. And they should have listened to him because it only lasted four episodes. I thought, what? I think. And at the time, in the video, they are showing clips from, if you're a certain age, you'll recognize this, uh, clips from the 1967 cartoon series. It started in 1967. It's the one with the theme, Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. You know, it starts with that theme, right? And and they, they, they're showing that. And I thought... I watched that when I was a kid, when it was being played in, you know, in syndication repeats, or whatever, after school. I watched it as a kid, and I seem to recall there being a lot more than four episodes, because that's what Simon says. Simon tells us that the producers should have listened to Stan Lee because it only lasted four episodes. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? And I looked into it. That series lasted 52 episodes. And I started looking for other Spider-Man animated series. I couldn't find any that only went four episodes. So I have no idea where their researchers got that information. And I, I, I told them, I, or I just said, this is, you know, this has made me a little doubtful now of the rest of your content, 
of all the other videos that you do for biographics. I mean, I happen to know some stuff here, and I'm spotting these errors. So that's not that's not right. That's not accurate. Where the hell did you get that information? That's not you know. I'm I'm doing that while I'm watching this I don't know 15 20 minute video, <laughs> and the worst bit of it was. Uh, as I said, it's well produced, and they'll have the, they'll put up these little title cards as they do like chapters, right? And so they put up a title card. This is something, and when they do that, they play some music under that, and the music that we hear uh, for this biographic about Stan Lee, the creator of uh, well, one of the creators of Marvel Comics. They play the music from the Christopher Reeve Superman movie from 1978-79. From Superman! <laughs> and I, st I, I, I sat there, transfixed. Am I hearing what I think I'm hearing? I backed it up. That's the Superman theme. What in the hell does Superman have to do with Stan Lee? Why is it in here? Now, it is true that late in Stan Lee's life and his career, he did write some Superman stories. It was sort of a gimmick thing between Marvel and, and DC, or, or between Stan Lee and DC Comics, that he would write up, you know, Stan Lee writes Superman, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but he had nothing to do with Superman. <laughs> and it's, it just was, it just was, oh. So it just reminded me, or made clear to me that there are other videos where I don't know anything. Of, I don't know anything about Rasputin or you know Hindenburg or any anybody else that they do these biographies. Ed Gein, I uh, you know we were watching an Ed Gein thing and my uh, with my my wife was watching it with me and she happens to know some stuff about Ed Gein and she said that's not true. <laughs> I thought holy cow, <laughs> um, maybe. There, we shouldn't be getting our histories uh, too much from this. <sighs> there, isn't that better than talking about COVID? Just, just I thought I'd take you on that journey uh, through Marvel Comics and the Comics Code and biographics, not getting things right. Um, I'm wondering if I have enough time I will uh, give it a go. Let's see uh, if I can do it. What do you think? Are you are you are you a game? Here we go. And now it's time for a Dimland Radio pedantic moment. Yeah, this ought to be good. Well, with at least one person, this was controversial. <laughs> My friend Tim who is a member of the Minnesota Skeptics. He is my mother's favorite Minnesota Skeptic, and that's including me. Uh, anyway, um, I did a blog this past week for uh, Warehouse Find, which is the official blog of Nostalgia Zone, which is the comic book store that I work for. And I have to admit that you think you think my show has been a little sporadic in, in, in you know how regularly it's being put out. The blog has gotten even... <laughs> even less regular. Uh, it's it, it's I used 
every week I do one and the last since the COVID I've been doing you know uh, a couple a month and I get my friend uh, Michael out there in California to uh, do a guest blog here and there to help pad out the month it's just been helpful for me just to kind of keep myself a little bit sane keep some of the pressure off of me of all these things I have to produce that either nobody listens to or nobody reads or nobody looks at who cares but I do it anyway because I enjoy it and there are some people that do read it and listen so there you go all right um, one of the greatest moments in television history and I want to underline that I do think it's one of the greatest moments in television history when television is done right it can be so good. I mean, really good. There's this, the, you know, I, I suppose now as we're getting older, you know, as, as we're driving, as, as we're uh, moving beyond in years, heading into the future, that it, that this, this particular program is falling far and farther back into the past, uh, you're going to have more and more people that aren't going to be as familiar with it. But... If you're of a certain age, you know about this television show. It's called MASH. It was a it was a cultural phenomenon. Uh, it went on the air in 1971, went off the air in 1982. That's 11 years. Uh, the war that is the setting for the movie only lasted three years. <laughs> that was the Korean War. And uh, the show... Uh, I've talked about how it's it's it went from being sort of a comedy drama to being a drama comedy. Uh, it, it's because you know where where the it, for the first few years the well it was up until Frank Burns left the show that the character Frank Burns was written off the show. Uh, the actor Larry Linville he left. Up until that point, it was more comedy than drama, but it was starting to head more toward more drama than comedy. But as soon as he was gone, it it made that switch over to it's more drama than comedy. Uh, it's hard. It's a it's a hard series to categorize. Um, well, I taught I, I, I you know I was inspired to write the blog this week because I was thinking about the 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 last episode that McLean Stevenson, who played Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake, who was the commanding officer of that MASH unit for the first three seasons and he was contracted to be there for four five seasons or something like that but somewhere in the third season he just started saying he wanted to get out because he was getting offers from other networks that were more lucrative and he thought it would be a better move and one of those networks was NBC saying hey you know we'll give you your own show and you might have a shot at hosting the tonight show when Johnny retires so McLean Stevenson was able to convince the producers to let him out of his contract, and they said, "Decide, okay, at the end of season three, we'll give you a uh, you know season finale send off, and we'll we'll do all that." And he he did. He left the show. He went over to NBC. They produced a bunch of shows for him. None of them worked, and Johnny didn't retire until 1992, I believe. It was 92, and you know, so you know, so was it a bad career move? Well, I don't know, but. Uh, um, that last episode was, uh, you know, it, the big. It, it starts off in the OR, the operating room, with, with Radar coming in all excited, and he tells Colonel Blake that he's earned his points and he's going home. He's getting discharged. 
he gets to leave the war. So the rest of the episode is sort of having some memories and wrapping things up and having a party and getting all drunk and doing silly things and getting a spiffy suit. And off he goes. And there's this really wonderful touching moment where uh, Colonel Blake is about to get onto the helicopter, which had brought in some wounded, so they really couldn't give him a great send-off because they had to deal with the wounded. He's about to get on the helicopter, and he sees Radar O'Reilly, the company clerk, played by Gary Berghoff, saluting, standing there saluting, holding back tears. And he, you know, so, so Colonel Blake comes back over to him and tells him, you know, you better behave or I'm going to come back here and kick your butt. And uh, returns the salute and gives him a hug. It was a nice special moment because, you know, Colonel Blake would be the you know, the father figure of, of Radar, you know. Um, and, and so it was really touching, a nice moment. And... The series then, or the show, then some time must have taken place. This wasn't just immediately after this, because you know, some some time, a few days, must have gone by. And we find ourselves, at the end of the show, back in the, emer- uh, the operating room. And uh, I'm going to play the audio for this. And it's kind of long, and I'm, gonna, I'm going long this week. <laughs> but it... But it it's worth listening to, uh, and it and it gets quiet. But to take the quiet out of it would be, uh, I think, you know, would under would not uh, do the moment well. So uh, here's here's the moment uh, to um, uh, to listen to. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the moment where radar comes into the the OR at the end of the episode. Uh, and he says this. Radar, put a mask on. If that's my discharge, give it to me straight. I can take it. I have a message. Lieutenant Colonel, Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. Now that is one of the greatest moments in television. It's cemented that episode in history, television history. I want that stated before I get to my pedantry. It's a great moment. You know, he, he comes in, he reads the telegram, turns around and leaves, and then the camera pans across the operating room. It's dead silent in there except for moving around, and you hear that, that uh, scalpel or something drop to the floor. And I, what I mentioned in the blog is that not not only does that uh, it, not only does it break the silence momentarily, but it also accentuates the silence. It just shows us just how quiet it got in that room, and we're seeing these characters face uh, t- eyes welling up with tears. Even Frank Burns, you know, there's just because you know, he's supposed to be the asshole of the show, right? So even he's affected. And, it, and, it, and it, the camera finally lands on Trapper John and Hawkeye. 
and then it fades to black. Uh, and then the show it's, uh, itself would then show uh, before it, uh, before it uh, you know went to its end credits and titles and credits whatever. Um, they would show a montage of uh, images of, of Colonel Blake and you know from the first three seasons. There's you know funny things right there, and gave a sort of a you know farewell McLean Stevenson thing, and 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 it was just magnificent. Now uh, the uh, and I am going over because <laughs> I want to do this right. The uh, it, the story about the production of that. Now I had thought that nobody knew what Radar was going to say when he came in. I thought none of the actors knew. The only one that knew was Radar, uh, Gary Berghoff. He was the only one that knew. Uh, I found out that it's not that's not quite right. Uh, nobody knew about Henry dying at the end of the episode as they as they rehearsed and, and filmed the, 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 you know, everything else in the show. They left that last scene to be the last thing to do. So nobody nobody knew about it. It's possible. I think Larry Gelbart, who is one of the show's creative guys, uh, created the show and worked on it, and he was also directing this episode. Uh, I think he said that he did tell at some point. He told Alan Alda, who was kind of you know at that point they realized he was the star of the show. Did tell him, but he didn't. Nobody else knew about it. And then, and then when it got to getting to that last scene, and none of them had this in their scripts, uh, they they said, okay, we want to relight the operating room. And, and he had the main crew, or the main cast, come with him, and he handed out that bit of the script that they hadn't gotten, that he hadn't seen before. And they all read it, and they're completely stunned that this is what's going to happen. So, And it was actually the second take that we see, at least that's what Gelbard was saying, and memory's not videotape. He said the first take came in, it was great. But, you know, the cameraman or somebody said, well, we got to do it again. Something something happened that we got to do it again. They weren't sure they were going to be able to pull it off again, but they talked to, you know, Gary Berghoff. He said, can you do it? Yeah. And what he did was, what Berghoff, the actor, was doing was he was he was just letting his feelings out, his actual feelings out for knowing that McLean Stevenson was leaving the show. So he was using that. And the reason why Gelbar didn't want the cast to know that Henry was going to die at the end of the show until they got to that very last scene was, even though they're good actors, he felt that it would have, it would have shown in their performance for the other parts of the show. They just wanted it to, he wanted it to be very joyous. He wanted it to be up and happy and everything. So when it got to that end part, it was even more of a gut punch. And, you know, it was their way of showing their the audience that war is hell. People die needlessly. This is, you know, let's not, you know, we know we're having some laughs here, but let's not forget, this is about war. And, and war is bad. <laughs> And they did get response, and for for a time there, the um, Gelbard and another fellow were handwriting letters back to to fans that were upset that they killed Henry Blake, saying, you know, this is war. This is, you know, don't you know, don't be upset at us. Be upset at war. This is this is why this shouldn't happen. And this this is 1975. The, the Vietnam War was just sort of petering out at that point, or had just petered out. So it's big, but again. <laughs> What's my pedantry? <laughs> my pedantry is... You coming in, Kitty? There she is. You can hear the door, but you can't hear her. Um, my pedantry is in what Radar reads from the telegram. He says, 
you know, I have a message. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. It spun in. There were no survivors. I've always had a problem with those three words. It spun in. They've bugged me. Because I thought, why are they there? You know, some clerk in, 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 in the Army Command is ordered to, you know, send a telegram to the 4077th to let them know that their, 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 command, their former commanding officer who just left was killed when his plane got shot down. Why isn't it, why wasn't it, you know, I have a message. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. There were no survivors. And then turn and walk away. Why it spun in? Why the descriptor? You know, why paint a picture? I it just I know. I, and my friend Tim was was saying to me, he was giving me, he was giving me the needle, he was giving me some shit. He said, "Wait, wait, the show ran eleven years. That's longer than the war. <laughs> the war went three years. There's there was never any other kind of quite that kind of send off for any of the other characters that were written off the show. Kind of with radar. They did they did give radar something, but that was. You know, a little bit different, but still, you know, it wasn't that. And the laugh track. Why do they got a laugh track in that show? That's ridiculous. And hey, he's right. But this is what pedantry is about. <laughs> it's about picking nits, at least in some cases. And it, it just bugged me that that's how it went. That it just why why would you you know did it, why would you tell them? Do you think somebody would ask? Did it did it just go straight in? To the Sea of Japan? Did it just go straight down in there? Did it spin in? Was did it catch on fire? Was there a flame? No, they're not going to ask. All you got to do is say, you know, I have a message. Lieutenant Henry, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. There were no survivors. That's it. <laughs> you don't need the. It spun in. I don't know why it's about. It's it's bothered me only a little bit. And the thing that bothers me about it is, I think it shows the voice. Of the writers, there was a couple guys that wrote that, and it's just—it's like this is what the this is the writers stepping in, or you see that, and I didn't want to see that, and that's why I think that's why it bugged me. Not terribly, it didn't. Really, it's still one of the greatest moments in television history. Sad, to, you know, terrible moment, but you know, a great moment to just show what television can be when it's when it works. I just you know it. I just don't think that the army would send a telegram saying it's spun in. I, I just don't think they would. Good night, Herr Doctor. Good night, Frau Blucher. So anyway, and oh, it's interesting that Trapper tells, uh, uh, oh, hey, hang on, hang on. I'm going to pause this. It's interesting that Trapper it says to Radar, the moment he walks in, his Radar, put a mask on. Why do we wear masks? Why do surgical staffs wear masks in the operating room? Why? Do they wear that to protect themselves? No. They wear it to protect the patient. And, and, and if you worry about cloth masks not being enough, oh, you're just wearing a cloth. That's not enough. What kind of masks are they wearing on, on, on MASH in 19, 1950s? What kind of masks were they wearing? They were wearing cloth masks. Sure, 
the paper surgical masks that they use now are better because science and, and technology had gotten better since the 1950s. So yes, the masks are better and the science realizes these are better because they do more to, to uh, uh, protect against virus uh, that droplets and stuff getting out and getting in. Yes, they're better, but they're, the, these cloth ones were still effective back in the Korean War. They were wearing cloth and they were wearing masks and they weren't wearing them to protect themselves. They were wearing them to protect others. Huh? Okay, now I'm going to get the uh, thing playing again. So, <laughs> you've been listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network with a little bit of bonus time. Uh, be skeptical, extraordinary claims, uh, and all that. Wear masks, wash your hands, be safe, be careful, and sleep with the lights off. check out my show notes at dimland.com. Just click on the blog option and you can email your questions and comments to drdim at dimland.com. That's D-R-D-I-M at dimland.com. And the opening theme song, Ram, is by Theolius and is used with permission. Production of the Z Talk Radio Network. And now a message to our competitors. Thanks. Thanks for tuning us in. Well, I'm going to hell. hell.